Hello Australia. It's the Layback Podcast, episode number five. This episode, I sit down and interview Dr. Ashley Hendy, a Melbourne-based climber who's been climbing in the Victorian scene for almost 20 years. Ashley has carved out an academic career in exercise science and neuroscience and is currently on a bit of a career break. And as I record this intro, she's actually climbing her way across North America with her partner Chris and her dog Lulu. Ashley stopped through Melbourne en route to the US after a stint climbing in Tasmania over the summer. I took the opportunity to sit down with Ashley to record this episode at her family home. We cover a lot of ground in this interview. Ashley's experiences climbing in Melbourne and Victoria throughout the years, her academic career, and the insights that she can bring where her research applies to climbing. She tells us how she attempts to manage the work-life balance around that academic career, and I ask her a bit about Serpentine, a route that she recently sent that she'd long dreamt about clipping the chains on. Finally, Ashley tells us about her experiences climbing in the Grampians and Arapiles over the years and why those areas are so important to her, how those areas have changed, and she gives us a bit of a peek into her climbing ambitions for the future. Because we did record on her veranda, kind of surrounded by gum trees, there are a few native birds in the background, uh, including a bit of a cameo from a kookaburra at one point. I hope it adds to the atmosphere of this Australian climbing podcast. Here it is. You just returned back to Melbourne from like a bit of a stint down in Tasmania. Uh, what, what were you doing down there? Uh, went down there for 10 weeks. Um, basically, this has been the beginning of my um, well overdue gap year. Um, so, yeah, started off with 10 weeks in Tasmania. Seemed like the most appropriate place to go um, with the world as my oyster, but, you know, January weather conditions. Um, a lot of the options are, are not so um, great in the Northern Hemisphere. So obviously Tasmania's got a lot of rock. I've really only just dabbled in it, I think, yeah, prior to this trip. Um, and yeah, I went to as many different places as possible, sampled the rock there, um, got mostly pretty shut down in most places that I went, but had a lot of adventures, met some really cool, really interesting people um, and had a wonderful time. So, um, yeah, I mean, like I, I, I did the totem pole, which is obviously on, on every Australian climber's tick list, I'm How sure. did that go? Uh, it went really, really well. Um, yeah. we, we played our cards right and we asked a lot of questions and mm. thought about what we were doing. Didn't jump into it because we had 10 weeks we were able to plan. Mm. Um, waited for good weather, went nice and early. First one's there because these days it does tend to get a little bit of a line, which seems crazy. But okay, yeah. Um, yeah, got all the gear beta and the weather beta and, um, and made sure yeah, we didn't carry too much in and cook our legs or anything like that. Mm. Wrapped in, um, there was a bit of swell. It was, like a, it was a little damp down the bottom. Um, but basically, uh, me and my partner, Chris, um, both managed to send the free route. So, um, he went up first and got the onsite, um, wrapped back down, allowed me to lead as well so I could flash. Um, and he then proceeded to go on and onsite the sorcerer, which is the 27 next to the free route, uh, okay. um, which was quite impressive. And <laughs> I was so surprised by that. I'd actually made a, a, a deal with him. When he was tying in, I said, if you on-site this thing, I'll do the Tyrolean naked. <laughs> Which was, like seemed reasonable at the time because no one was around. <laughs> but by the time he'd finished and we were up the top doing the Tyrolean, there was about 16 people <laughs> doing the candlestick and the tote. So, um, Did he give I, you a reprieve? Or? I didn't keep my word, so I owe him one there. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> but so it was a great day out. Business. I mean, it was like a completely, like it's a day that you, you're never going to forget. Yeah. Um, the climbing is just magnificent. The position is magnificent. Um, you've got seals around you and um yeah it was just like it's pretty hard to top that i guess it's like one of those life experiences yeah. that you've got to do as a yeah. climber we also um managed to go to a few places less traveled um so we went out to the tyndall ranges and went to uh, lake huntley we did a 300 meter uh, multi-pitch there called deeper water which was an amazing experience um it's a long walk in you camp in a bivy cave um 
you wrap in and um, you actually, we took a wrap line and we wrapped in down to the lake and you got to get yourself out of there. <laughs> That's the only option for getting out really. It yeah. is, yeah. I mean, they say that there's a base jumpers track these days. It's been semi-cut in, but I'm, I'm really like, I was not looking forward to trying to find that thing if we couldn't get up the route. Um, and it's a grade 27 and it's a, it's a Tassie 27. The grades okay. are a little bit different down there to How our, many pitches <laughs> is it? I think it's nine, nine pitches or so. Okay. 300 meters, a couple of really long pitches in there, yeah. lots of hard pitches, and it's on this really cool conglomerate rock, which is unlike anything I've seen before. So it is really difficult um, to on site, um, which, you know, like we, we didn't manage to do, but we were pretty happy with the fact that we got ourselves out of there without being benighted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the quality and, of the conglomerate like? Because that can be hit and miss, right? You can be pulling big chunks out of conglomerate. It was better than probably what we sort of anticipated. Yeah. Um, there was a little bit of loose rock here and there. And, you know, a, a grade 27 in that kind of environment is not something that gets heavily trafficked. So, yeah. um, even though it's been like, you know, it was put up a few years ago, um, it hasn't probably seen a lot of ascents and a lot of traffic. And mm. so, loose rocks to, to be expected. Um, overall, the rock quality was actually really good. The climbing, the moves were really nice. Um, but it was hard, you know. <laughs> Everything in Tasmania is hard. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, but I think that just kind of added to the experience and mm. it was, it was kind of humbling trip. All and all yeah um a lot of vertical climbing which is like basically just honed my weaknesses mm. um lots of trad climbing which is not something that i've had a lot of experience with in the past i'm trying to build my skills so it was a perfect destination yeah. um for that and um yeah i think you know those were probably the highlights but we also we checked out the organ pipes we went to the star factory um down to the parody so mount brown we did an awesome multi-pitch down there as well called talk is cheap um and then we spent a bit of time in the north went to the gorge spent quite a bit of time at bear rock at the boneyard and yeah just had a blast just like hitting yeah. as much as possible we did a lot yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so you're back in melbourne now we're sitting in your your family home you, mm -hmm. you grew up here in this melbourne? is where i grew up yeah okay. so outer suburbs of melbourne yeah. um and yeah, it's kind of cool to be back here, I suppose, um, for a very short stint before I take the, the gap year a little further. Yeah. <laughs> and you started climbing pretty early, right? You were about, you were about 12. I was so. 12 years old. Um, and I hadn't, um, I'd, I'd been doing like a lot of other sports like um, as a kid, but um, I think I'd probably always been kind of drawn to climbing. Just like over there, I'm looking at this climbing frame that my dad built for me when I was a child. So it's like, oh, oh maybe, really? Maybe there's a hint there. Um, but yeah, I started indoors um, okay. at the gym, um, which is in Nunawading, just 10, 15 minute drive from here, um, and started training in a in a junior club. A friend of mine from high school. I just started high school. Okay. The girl that I met was uh, a climber, and they have a club there. Bring a friend night. And like next thing you know, here I am. <laughs> so, so you were brought along. And... Brought along to the gym. Okay. Um, and instantly, um, I guess, like my body was sort of built for it. And I okay. did pretty well. I was pretty flexible, fairly strong um, and just quite athletic. What, um, why, why do you think that? So what sports were you doing before that kind of led you to? A little bit of everything, but yeah. I was I was fairly decent at athletics. Okay. Um, so I was a runner, and yeah. um, I still run for fun these days. But I'm not not that good, and I was never real, I was never great. Um, but I was like an 800 meter, 400 meter runner, um, and yeah, I think like I was pretty light. Um, I've always had like really like broad shoulders and small hips. And, um, yeah, even from day one as a 12 year old, you know, I could pull out a couple of chin ups. So I think that's more than like what most people, you know, when they get started, don't have that baseline. So like with, as you would imagine, like kids, when they start something and they realize that they're okay at it, then they get hooked pretty quickly. Yeah. There so. was that enthusiasm because yeah. you kind of had a little bit of like that natural talent or, or talent from, from other factors. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about talent, but um, <laughs> I just took to it quickly. Yeah. And then I didn't really, you know, excel. I just I just had fun. Like I went along to this club. I made lots of friends. It was three nights a week, um, two-hour training sessions. I did a fair bit of mucking around. Um, I improved a little bit. I didn't really train. I just liked the movement. Mm. Um, and, yeah, that's how it sort of all began. That was what, early 2000s? Uh, yeah, like 2001 or so. 2000. Yeah. When you look at your experience of, of coming into climbing and that, that gym scene, which 
was probably relatively new concept around that time. How would you contrast that versus, say, what people of a similar age, like say around twelve, would be experiencing these days when they when they find climbing? Well, completely different, I yeah. suppose. Um, there was there was a couple of gyms in Melbourne at the time, um, many or a couple of which have since closed or okay. burnt down, um, but. Yeah, the, um, it was a small gym. It wasn't anywhere near as busy as what it was. The, the junior club probably had about 12 kids in it, I, okay. I guess. Um, they didn't sell any women's or kids' harnesses in the little store there, and I didn't have any harnesses that would fit me okay, <laughs> as a so 12-year-old girl. I was really small. And, um, so yeah, what, we got what this... did you use for a harness then? I well, mean, I, d- you... I bought a harness, but yeah. it, like it was so big for me that I could fit my entire hand through the leg loop. So I could put my whole arm and leg through the leg loop at once. Okay. Um, but I guess I could just cinch the waist up like just enough to – and I didn't lead climb straight away. You know, I'm on a top rope. So yeah, okay. um, it wasn't such a big deal. But I, I was in this like this harness and it probably just looked ridiculous. <laughs> and on top of that, the, the junior club had like this singlet and, of course, it's like a men's size small. And so I actually – remember like being in the laundry with mum like trying to shrink it in the dryer so it would fit me (laughs) so um yeah I guess it was it was a really alternative thing to do back then um and it was probably I mean it didn't take long I was having so much fun climbing and it was just so much more intriguing for me that all of a sudden athletics running around in circles on a red track just became like exceptionally boring Mm -hmm. and I was no longer interested in that and um yeah just climbing started to take up all of my spare time okay um yeah and I guess like getting back to that sort of these days uh I guess younger people there's what like now nine ten gyms in Melbourne like the landscape's a little bit different these days yeah, it's completely different. Um, the competitions have, have changed a lot. There were some comps early early days and I did um, do some of those, but it was such a friendly environment. Um, it, it just wasn't competitive um, as a sport. And um, yeah, I think it was just, it was a really small community. And now I don't think it really has, I mean, as climbers, we always feel that we are part of a community, but it's definitely grown and changed. Um, and I, I certainly... Um, found for myself as a young girl that it was a, like a great community to be a part of. Um, there were, you know, other other female role models. There was a lot of um, like like who who were the role models? Um, just other girls in the gym, like okay. you know, like people that are a little bit older than me, um, mm. that kind of stuff. Um, and um, yeah, there was just like we'd all hang out together. We'd be climbing the same routes, like the guys, the girls, people um, of various ages as well. So I think most of the time, um, if you're a 12 year old girl in sport, you're you're playing and training with other 12 or 13 year old girls, and that's it. Whereas in this climbing gym, you know, I'm hanging out with like both genders between the ages of 11 and 21. And um, I think that was fairly appropriate for me as a kid as well. So it just was a good fit. Yeah. And w- was the world kind of like just within Melbourne and the climbing scene there? Or like, did w- were there like external international influences or anything with in terms of like role models? Were there any like ideal climbers who? Or, oh, well, there was like who, Rock Magazine. Hey, yeah, like, okay. like we'd buy Rock Magazine and this kind of stuff. Um, but I was not at all aware of like international scene at the, in those days, like international climbers so much. I suppose like as I got a little bit older, we'd watch like climbing movies and, um, and that kind of thing. But it felt like we were doing this really sort of special thing that only we understood I think yeah. in a way um, and I'm sure that now that that's not the the feeling that you get yeah. um, especially you know this concept now that it's in the Olympics I mean we were just doing this activity that was you know maybe you wouldn't even call it a sport it's just a hobby you know something like that whereas now it's really recognized um, and it's grown and there's a you know there's hundreds of different media outlets and social media now and you see and hear and you've got Instagram and people are achieving stuff all over the place and so I probably actually felt like more of a big fish in a small pond those days because you know you just had your small pond and that that was it so um yeah you felt like I suppose a little bit more a part of something so you've been climbing almost two decades now Almost. Almost. Yeah, almost. <laughs> how, how, I guess how is – I'm keen to understand how has climbing changed for you over that over that period? Like, um, 
it's always been a big part of my life, but it has drifted in and out. I've mm. done a lot of other things, including um, you know a lot of study and, and times where I've been career focused. Um, I also had a big point in time um, where I didn't climb, so I had a knee reconstruction, quite a severe injury um, to my left knee that I sustained while snow skiing, um, and that had me out of climbing for probably nearly twelve months. Okay, and that was maybe the longest break I had from sort of training and really trying to, you know, to climb. I might have dropped in at the gym occasionally and just tested it out and see how it was going. But it took me a long time to recover from that knee injury. Um, But yeah, I mean, I suppose even then I would have still identified as a rock climber, even when I was not able to climb during that time. And, and yeah, as, as climbers, we, you know, that's, we are climbers, you know, I think like, most people and particularly young kids and and other friends that I have outside of climbing they might play a sport but they don't identify as someone who plays that you know that's not what they who they are um but I've always felt like you know across all that time that I've been a climber um it took me a while because obviously being young and unable to drive took me a while to get more into climbing outside um but even in the gym you know I felt like a climber I spent a lot of time in those gyms you know cutting laps um (laughs) on plastic and then and then it became more adventurous for me as I was able to go outside um and yeah some some distractions I suppose in the early 20s um and then as I got to sort of my mid 20s 24 25 I really dove into it again and um immerse myself in the climbing world yeah um and it's always been a bit of a like I juggle a lot of other stuff too um and now probably I'm at this stage in my life where I'm trying to actually lift that climbing up the priority list to maybe even the top um which is going to be a new thing again so um hopefully it'll be a really enjoyable and positive experience so climbing for you has always kind of been like it's always had to take I guess or be prioritized among other things. Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, it's always been there, and it's always been a huge outlet for me. I think when I'm stressed, and um, it's taken up various amount, like varying amounts of time, mm. as um, <clears throat> as part of my life uh, but it's I've always had other things going on too so I've been working pretty hard as a student over the years I'm doing a PhD and then getting an academic job and that just it takes up time I think yeah um. that, that's probably a good segue into uh, like I guess I'd like to flesh that out a bit because um, I read uh, in a presentation you sent me you describe yourself like as this, as a qualified nerd yeah. Right. And um, you have kind of carved out this career in that academic space within, um, and I believe you described it as exercise neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Is kind of like what, what you're specializing in. H- how did you end up on that path? Um, shamefully, I think it was pure luck. Um, I'd like to say that I set out with that direction um but I think and I think this is often the case for most people um it's sort of a combination of just making decisions with what's available to you at the time but basically I finished school um I was a kid you know I didn't really know what I wanted to do I probably thought it was a good idea to go to university because that's how you're going to set yourself up well for life yep and um and I really loved climbing and I loved sport so all right, I'll study exercise science. Um, great idea. <laughs> Without really thinking about, you know, what would come next. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was always a really academic um, kid as well. And, you know, I, like I'm quite good at studying and I like studying. So I did really well in the course and I got offered a scholarship to do my honours, which is a research year. And ironically, one of the reasons that I'd picked exercise science in the beginning as opposed to something like physiotherapy or even medicine was that I didn't want to stay at university for more than three years. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm 30 now. I'm still at the same university. So that's quite funny, right? <laughs> but um, <laughs> basically I said to myself, I applied for a few jobs and I had this honours scholarship and I was weighing up what I would do with my future. And I actually got offered a, a couple of different jobs and I went to, like, went some, to some interviews. And then I just decided, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you why, but I decided to do the honours year. And I picked a neuroscience-based project, even though I'd not really excelled at or loved the neuroscience that I'd studied as part of the undergrad. Um, And there's not a lot of sense as to how I came to that decision, but I'm so glad that I did. Um, (laughs) 
So I started doing that. I did my honours. Again, I did really well at it. This was at exactly the same time that I had the knee reconstruction and couldn't be focused on climbing um, or much other, you know, physical activity. So, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time um, at the university in the honours room working on my project ended up doing really well with that and um, and got offered a PhD scholarship. So it's one of those situations where you don't necessarily set out to achieve something, but doors open along the way and um, then that's where you land. And, and the project that I did for my honours opened up many more questions. It was a really interesting topic. I had kind of fallen in love with it and um, I decided to do a PhD in the area. Um, three and a half years later, I was a doctor and decided that the academic life was me. So was yeah. for me. So um that's, that's how it all came together, I guess. Your PhD, um, and I'm going to try and try and get this right because I read, I did Google kind of your, your name. It's just, I, I do a lot of research for these things and your name appears next to a lot of academic articles and I'm reading the, the titles and, and I can't understand half the words, right? But there was something in there about your PhD and this kind of like idea of cross training, like you can train one side of the body and it, and it strengthens the other or something. Can you maybe add a little bit more flavor to my understanding? Well, I'll try not to use any of those words that really make it sound harder than it actually is. Okay. Um, <laughs> they're just big words. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely correct. So I, I study this phenomenon, um, which is known as cross-education or cross-transfer. Um, and basically, we've known about it for over 200 years. Um, when you train one side of the body, you observe strength increases on the other side without any increase in muscle mass. Okay. So it's from the early days, it was always attributed to neural adaptations that um, occur bilaterally on both sides, even if the movement's only occurring on one. Um, so obviously, it's of great interest when it comes to things like rehabilitation. Um, if you know, you've got a single limb injury, applications in stroke and those sorts of things as well. And yet it's an area that hasn't received a huge amount of scientific attention, um, particularly because, I mean, neuroscience is probably one of the things that these days still is what we would say is in its infancy as far as you know studying the human body it's like one of those last frontiers I suppose um, where a lot of you know a lot of research is there's still a lot of unanswered questions I suppose um, so yeah I, I did my honours project looking at cross transfer in limb immobilization um, and had some really successful results which doesn't happen very often in science and hasn't happened a whole, whole lot since completing my honours here. <laughs> but that just means that I'm an honest and ethical scientist. Okay. <laughs> Not that I'm bad at my job, but that's what I tell myself anyway. Um, so, yeah, I've just persisted, I suppose, in trying to understand this phenomenon more, um, looking at what's occurring within the brain and the nervous system. And um, we have new technologies developing all the time that allow us to actually directly me measure um, connections between the brain and the muscles so and muscle activation, that kind of stuff. And I also use brain brain stimulation techniques to attempt to sort of um, manipulate and increase or enhance this um, benefit um, of transfer, again, for rehabilitation purposes. So, um, yeah, that's the sort of space that I work in um, with my research and I like talking about it, as you can probably tell, and, and it's interesting. And when mm. people ask about it, I know, you know, I feel lucky that I get to, you know, basically just go off and learn about stuff and and that's my job um but it's also like you know it's it's pretty um it's pretty tiring at times when you're working on these sorts of large projects um and investing in in these sorts of things and research is very slow going so um it can be hard work hmm. You mentioned this idea that this area of science is kind of like a new frontier. Is that like, is there like a an appeal to it from that perspective for you? Because it is, you kind of feel like you're you're plowing into this new area with, with science. Um, being new is cool. Like all science has to be new, otherwise yeah. all research has to be. Otherwise, it's not like there's not much point in doing it. Um, but I think probably more so than that aspect, it's it's more the purpose and the reason for doing it. Um, you know, I mentioned the knee injury and mm. when that happened, you know, like I lost so much function and many of us can think of examples when we've had injuries and um, looking at better ways to be able to manage and deal with that and the idea of doing something, going, getting up and going to work every day and doing something as slow and tedious as it might be at times that actually might have an end result that has an impact um, is probably what draws me in the most rather than um, sort of novel, new kind of thing. So. Yeah. People do ask me about, because I've got a strength and conditioning and exercise science background, they ask me about research in climbing. 
and it interests me a lot. Um, I think it would be really cool to do some studies in, in climbers, but at the end of the day, you know, we're a small community of athletes and looking at minor increases in performance is probably not like really meaningful work when you compare it to some of the other stuff that I've had the opportunity to do. Okay. Um, so it would be interesting and fun and, and those sorts of things, but um, I'd probably prefer my research to go down that pathway of um, really being able to make differences in the medical side of, um, of things as well, rather than just sports performance. Yeah. I also think that the majority of the research that we do in exercise science um, you know, can be applied, like general principles can be applied. You don't necessarily have to study um, climbers themselves, if that makes sense. So once you've got your general um, physiological principles, they can be applied to different sports settings that have um, similar uh, types of, uh, of requirements. Okay, yeah, because yeah. I, I know you've written some articles that kind of take your uh, what you've learned and, and apply it to climbing a little bit, but there's like a more of a purpose there. I guess it probably doesn't matter that much really if you can help someone climb two grades harder, but if maybe if you can help someone use a limb again that they didn't think they were going to be able to use, is they, are they the kind of applications? Yeah, to- that's yeah, that's definitely what I'm getting at. And also I think that, like you say, I've, I've written about um, using my knowledge from the research that I do and the study that I've done, you can write about climbing, but same goes, um, I could write about something completely different, like applying those, you know, a different sport. You can apply those same principles um, to, to basketball, to athletics, whatever it might be if you know the needs of the sport then you can apply what we know from the science um and yeah i think there's there's some aspects of of sports performance that are interesting and important as well but yeah when it comes to making a real difference i suppose in um regaining function and um giving someone independence or maintaining independence later in life with an aging population those types of things they probably hit home a bit more and it's Research is a hard world as far as getting funding goes and you're probably going to be able to convince a funding body um, if you want to do a study that's going to benefit stroke survivors versus elite rock climbers. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there, I guess um, there, there does seem to be some kind of side benefit there, though, for climbers as, as a bit of a, I guess, uh, a result of, of that research. And you have written a couple of articles on on that factor are there any other things that you've kind of learned along the way through this this uh this research that uh you've been able to apply to climbing yeah i mean everything that we learn about physiology is going to help us like as climbers and i think um yeah, I think a lot. So from my early days undergraduate and basic um, strength and conditioning, all of that stuff that I've learned, which you can learn from textbooks and, and those sorts of things as well, um, and existing work not related to my own, that forms my physical training side of things. And when it comes to the neuroscience, um, I think the transfer stuff, I haven't really used it a lot myself because I've been very lucky to be injury free um, in more recent years or mainly injury free Um, and the other side of things would be more the motor imagery and so looking at muscle activation from that um, perspective do you actually need to perform physical exercise to engage um, the neuromuscular system can you get certain benefits um, using motor imagery and that kind of stuff so when it comes to visualization and those sorts of things and that the mental approach to particularly red pointing and projecting um, then I, I definitely apply some of the principles that I have there okay so you would doing it kind of before i think it's been hyped a little bit lately with adam Ondra and silence and the imagery that everyone's seen of him like on the floor with his physio doing that kind of which is somewhat Moving physical around, as well yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. like do, do you do any of that or um you wouldn't catch me like lying on the ground like waving my arms around <laughs> i don't think um <laughs> But we, we all think about our projects before we go to sleep, right? That's not just me. <laughs> like, like lying in bed thinking about beta, like on a Tuesday night. That's not just me, surely. Um, yeah, yeah, I use a bit of visualization. Um, and because the majority of the time I've been a weekend warrior, uh, based in Melbourne, working, getting out on weekends, provided the weather's good, um, you know, you can't necessarily get that time en route if you've got a project that you are, that's a bit harder and, you, you know, you're really working towards. Um, so I think that you can gain a lot from, um, yeah, non-physical training and visualization of a route um, for sure. So, and I've used it, and when I and I also sometimes don't use it because life gets in the way. And I can definitely say that for me, when I use it, it works. But not everyone finds it so easy to implement motor imagery and visualization. Some people are actually, and the science tells us this: some people are not that good at it, others are good at it, and those who report 
finding it easy to visualize a, a physical movement without performing it um, actually get greater gains. Yeah. Oh, so if, if they think that's an easy thing to do, that means they're generally going to get better results from Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So yeah. if you struggle to visualize yourself climbing, then maybe it's not a good idea to do it? Or Well, you can get better at it. Okay. So you, it's a practice, like mm. it's a skill that you can learn and practice. So I okay. wouldn't say give it up, yeah. but you won't, until you're finding that you're actually able to visualize well, you're not likely to get as, as great a benefit. So, um, but you know, practice makes perfect and, and this like applies for, for this concept as well. Um, and... Yeah, it's probably like this will blow people's minds when I tell them this, but, you know, we actually have research studies where um, they've got groups of people to come into a gym, stand completely still and imagine themselves lifting weights. Um, at the, the end of six weeks, they get like to the effect of 30% stronger. It's quite exceptional, I think. <laughs> Did they put that down to, is that just uh, like, um, like a, a neural adaptation of kind of like the, the, uh, the nervous system or, or do they actually physically put on more muscle like through they like hypertrophy gain... or yeah, yeah they don't gain any muscle mass yeah. um so it's attributed and we can now measure as well mm. um using brain stimulation techniques we can look at the strength of the connection between the brain and the muscle effectively so a certain region of your brain is dedicated to um activation of a group of muscle fibers we can stimulate the brain um and activate the muscle fibers causing a twitch and we can measure that with electromyography. And after a period of six weeks of imagining training, we see the similar types of increases in the activation of the muscle to what we would see if someone was actually training. So it's a good thing to think about if you're a weekend warrior. Mm. It's a good thing to think about if you're injured. And it's also considered a, a great way to supplement physical training when you're taking rest days and that kind of stuff too. Yeah. Okay, I want to get into work-life balance thing, right? Because you juggle a lot of like a lot of different things. Um, but there is something I want to ask you about what you just mentioned. So if I go home right after a hard training session, and and I, I would find that mentally taxing. Like for me, you know, a hard power session, like on a forty-degree board or something like that, I'll go home and I'll struggle to sleep. Like and and it's mentally draining. If, if I'm doing that visualization, is it taxing me mentally in the same way? Or have I got this like extra reserve where I can like do the physical exercise and then go home and do the mental one and, and kind of um, like dip into another bucket of, of energy, so to speak? I suspect you should try it and find out. Um, I can't give you any scientific like mm. citations to support okay. my answer here, but I suspect you probably don't have an extra bucket of mental energy here, but it's going to save you on the physical en energy side of things. Yeah. So, um, which obviously for some people is not the limiting factor, um, but it's also useful to think about if you've got no time to get to the gym, those sorts of things as well. But I'd say if you're finding the physical training physically exhausting and also mentally draining, additional mental training on top will will continue or add to that mental fatigue, fatigue. as well yeah okay. um, but there hasn't been any work done in that area and it's going to be something that's pretty difficult to measure objectively yeah. so yeah i just you know as a as a climber that wants to climb heaps the, the appeal of just having like an, another bucket of energy to go and dip into is obviously pretty yeah pretty i don't think Maybe it's going to give there. you mental energy okay. but if you're completely cooked physically it's a good way to add to things yeah. um, and we do have research that shows that com combination of physical and mental training is the best way um, to get performance improvements yeah back on that work-life balance how do you manage that not well <laughs> most of the time mm. um, uh, and um, yeah I mean I, I think routine is probably my best way of managing things um, I get stressed I do get overwhelmed it's been really tough um, I wear myself out and sometimes I get sick because of it and I'm the kind of person that you know I skip a training session and I start to feel guilty even though you know it might be the right thing to do to to take some rest sometime like I, I have a lot of trouble grappling with that too um so yeah like it, it's really difficult and um you know in the academic world most of the people that I work with that's their thing and in the climbing world most of the people that I climb with that's their thing and here I am with like two things yeah just trying to juggle <laughs> yeah them. it's yeah. tough it's really really tough mm. um and um I think I've always or up until this year I've definitely um made sure that work and study um, comes first um, and that's taken me a long way and I feel that I've been, you know, I guess 
it's difficult to say, but you know, quite successful. You know, when I put my mind to it and my time into work, it's been good. And then I've managed to slot training and climbing in around that and do pretty well at that too. Um, and just, and mainly just, you know, had a lot of fun. Um, and this year I've decided to kind of flip that a little bit, um, taken time off work and put the energy into climbing and see if maybe I either get better at it or enjoy it more both would be great outcomes <laughs> either either I'll take whatever whatever comes my way um and yeah and so I guess probably this this year off is a bit of a representation of the fact that maybe I didn't own the work-life balance and I overdid it a little bit yeah um and needed needed some time off yeah. um but yeah, generally speaking, I think like holding yourself accountable, not too accountable because that, that can be um, not a good thing and having a bit of structure and routine in your life allows you to probably fit more into your day than what you thought you could. Um, but whether or not I was working into really gradual but extreme sleep deprivation over the last decade, I can't really say for sure. But <laughs> yeah. would, you, would you recommend the academic path to, say, young aspiring climbers who, who maybe um, who, who want to find a career path where they can juggle both? Honestly, probably not. I feel like if you want to be a good climber, then like climbing and work just doesn't mix, right? You go, you quit your job and you go, you become a, a dirtbag. That's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> you don't become an academic. That's not how you fuel a good climbing life. Um, but, uh, and it, yeah, it hasn't been easy. And I've also gotten, not only have I worked really hard to make the two work, I've also gotten lucky a number of times as well. So, and I've had great mentors and great support, those sorts of things. So it's probably not something that I would say, um, like I would recommend to someone who wants to spend time climbing because generally speaking, um, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of hard work. I think there's, I think it's a super rewarding path to go down. Um, and there's been some times when I've been able to leverage, um, off both, but it's taken a long time and a lot of hard work. And I'm, I'm really not sure that I would recommend it as a, as a great step. <laughs> um, it's definitely, um, not thinking that it's going to be a whole lot of fun and games. That's yeah. for sure. Um, but I've enjoyed it myself, yeah. And um, and I, I guess I'm lucky enough to say, you know, I've been I've been given a year off work, and I've actually got a job to go back to as well. So yeah, that's um, that seems to be a positive perks. thing about the that that career. Like when you're doing it, it's really intense, but you can kind of like take a take a, a block out and and take just, a sabbatical. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. as a student, it was like relatively. When I look back, it was quite an easy balance to achieve. Um, but then, sort of as you progress further, things get more and more busy, and I think at some point you know progressing and um getting through the career you, as you get a, a little bit higher up then you get a bit more freedom and it is a reasonably flexible type of um, area to be working in in academia um but there's just a lot of work so i mean it's great to think you can do work whenever you want to but when you've got a lot to get through there's no fighting that you've just got to get through it all um and if you want to spend a heap of time climbing then you're going to be you're going to have to make the decision and and yeah i, I mean as much as I've climbed a lot, I've also spent a heap of time in the gym because I can't get out on rock. Um, and I've sacrificed a lot of time on rock that, you know, I would have loved to have, but I haven't been able to for what I'm doing. So um, it's worked well for me. Um, and it's not it's not a bad choice, but it's not an easy choice. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of training for climbing, um, you, you've run seminars on, on training. Uh, and I've, I've seen the presentation, as I mentioned, you've got a pretty well-structured approach. Um, how has that approach to training been received in the climbing community over time? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's like really well-received. People just want to know they're just sponging up information as much as they can. Um, and... Um, so it's really exciting to have that knowledge and to be able to share that knowledge with people. Um, but certainly back when I started climbing, I mean, most of the time it's like, like what strength training, like, no, we're climbers, we go climbing, you know? So, um, it's changed a whole lot, obviously in the time, um, that I've been climbing it. And during that time, I've learned so much more myself and been able to apply it. And I hope that I'll continue to learn more about myself and my own climbing and also how to coach others and, um, what kind of principles are, are better applied more broadly, um, as, as we go. Um, but yeah, I've really found, um, that when I've chosen to, um, 
you know, to provide opportunities and tell people what I know about um, the science behind strength and conditioning, um, people are pretty keen to find out more um, and really interested to ask lots of questions. Interestingly, a lot of people will like to... Um, question I suppose what I've got to say I guess you know I climb okay but I'm not ticking 514 so people want to you know they they might question me um or um suggest that I suppose um that what I've got to say might not be correct which is a little difficult for me considering I've you know studied spent a lot of time studying the the human body and um and resistance training and those sorts of things um but having said that like whenever people have different opinions I think um those of us in this area are wise to listen to those opinions to think about them critically um and you know make sure that um we can actually provide answers to things because one of the problems that we have in the strength and conditioning community is someone asks why you do something and the answer is because that's what we've always done and that's not a scientific answer you know that's that's not a good way to be going about things so um, I hope that we continue to see um, the approaches growing and changing and being willing to adapt um, as well as you know coaches trainers and athletes um, being open to new ideas as they come forward um, those sorts of things yeah from a scientist's perspective do you think that the climbing culture and community um, and the, the approach to training within it has a lot of science behind it or because f- you can offer that perspective right or yeah. do you think it's a lot of kind of like um, bro science for, for lack of a better term um, I think climbing's way better than a lot of other sports yeah. Um, but yeah there's there's always going to be a lot of bro science I'm so glad that I don't study nutrition because I think you know if there's one thing that everyone is an expert at it's you know diets and nutrition <laughs> but secondary to that yeah a lot of people feel that because they've been going to the gym for 10 years they're an expert at training you know and so and it's not often backed by science so there's definitely a lot that goes on in, in that area and there's a, a wealth of information out there that's available and people can read but understanding the difference between high quality information versus not so good quality information that's a skill that you know only um, a lot of education in the field will I suppose teach you or an understanding of of research methods so even if you're reading scientific papers I can tell you as a scientist that um, just because one paper reports one finding um, give me 10 minutes with that paper and I'll tell you why it's not worth you know worrying about or perhaps you know why it's actually a really interesting finding that um, that that's um that's something to move forward with okay um, but yeah not all information including not all science is created equal so um yeah i think in the training world it's always going to be a problem but um thank goodness i'm not <laughs> trying to tell people what to eat because i think that would be even harder yeah. um and and i do think that climbers are a lot more climbers are pretty smart as far as the scale of athletes goes um if i can be as general to, to comment um and i think they're winning fans <laughs> yeah. that statement right now right <laughs> um with the climbers that are listening yeah um and yeah, I do. I do think that um, most climbers are pretty interested to try and sponge up the knowledge, and pretty wise about where they try to get that knowledge most of the time. Yeah. Okay. And you do some coaching as well. I, I saw a picture of you wearing a, a shirt that says <laughs> yeah. "Coach" on the back. Yeah, like. I just helped out at some of the gyms, particularly um, with involvement for females. I think it's really, you know, they like to get um, female climbers and, and coaches on board to make people feel welcome. I wouldn't say that, like, it's not something that I'm doing seriously. It's not something I'm paid to do uh, most of the time, you know. Or I, like, it's it's just something that if I'm at the gym and, and I can teach people something that's going to stop them from breaking their body or help them climb a little bit harder, um, then that's something I really, really enjoy doing. Um, so I've done little bits here and there. Um, obviously, I'm not doing anything um, really this year, but I think the strongest um, thing I can offer at this point is um, teaching people to understand the principles of training as opposed to actually being a coach myself. Um, it's definitely something that's crossed my mind, particularly on high stress days at work. It's like, let's quit all this and just become a rock climbing coach and go climbing all the time <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's more of something that I enjoy doing on the side yeah. um, and, and just um, in response to, I think, like 
that there is demand in a way from the community because people want to know more and people want to be training better and more effectively and they want to get better at climbing. So I'm always there to answer those questions for people um, and I like to think that um, as a, like I think it's a bit of a responsibility that we're making sure that people don't break themselves um, by training in um, you know ineffective or incorrect manner. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, competition climbing. You've been involved in competition climbing in the past. Uh, I think um, when you were younger as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did comps when I was a kid. I think, like I mentioned earlier, it was just different back then. You know, like it wasn't really competitive. Yeah. And as over the years, as competitions, you know, that the shape of them really changed, I progressively lost interest and had less and less fun. And it took me a moment to realize, I think, you know, after one long day at a comp where, you know, you might climb one or two routes in a day if you're lucky and you know if you're not having a good day you fall off and you, you don't top out and it's a lot of time gone and as a time poor academic um, it started to you know dawned on me all of a sudden that I actually wasn't having very much fun in the comps and you know in life we have this or in society you know we have this constant comparison and competition and um, way of measuring ourselves against others that already exists and I think for me I just didn't want that in climbing like I'm not interested in um, being competitive in that sense and I guess one of the beauties for me about climbing and one of the reasons I was drawn to it as a kid was you know it was it was really a personal endeavor Um, so I, I sort of noticed over time that I was not really that interested in comps and it doesn't mean that I won't like turn up at a social comp in Melbourne or, or something like that if it happens to be running or, or whatever. But I, I just decided I wasn't going to go down that pathway of the competition scene as it really emerged into something that was real, um, in Australia. So when I did compete back in the day, I mean, that must be like nearly sort of 10 years ago since I was properly doing the comps um it was just a different scene and it's it's not and I didn't mind it then but now these days it's it's not for me I think yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's I think it's with the IFC IFSC uh online videos and everything it's very uh it's stressful you yeah. know and I don't really need more stress in my life climbing for me is like a de-stress time not an increase like not a place to 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 place more stress more comparison and more um yeah expectation on myself I suppose particularly in that momentary um you know competition um yeah like yeah I still want to push myself because I'm projecting, you know. So I'm I'm trying to work out what the difference is. Yeah, there's some sort of difference there. Yeah. <laughs> In one of your presentations, uh, you ask people to consider like, what's the real reason they're climbing? Like, what's that underlying motivation? What's your real reason? Well, I love it. You know, it it, it just makes me happy, um, and. Particularly, I think when other areas of your life are, are making things hard, it's your escape, um, it's your happy place. And reflecting on my last ten weeks in Tasmania, I mean, I did some awesome climbing and, and the, you know, it was great. But you know, the highlights for me were the people that I met and spent time with, old friends, new friends. Um, the environment that I saw, those special moments that you have at sunrise or at sunset, and um, that's that's what it's all about for me like it's um it just it, yeah it gives me um this real grounded sort of feeling I think when when I'm climbing outside and and that's where you know that competition contrast it's just not there yeah um when you compare that to to an experience outside with good friends um in a natural environment going to new places meeting new people that's what it's about for me yeah last year you sent serpentine uh, which on social media you describe as this lifelong dream route. Uh, and this is going to sound like a silly question, stupid question to some, but what was the appeal of Serpentine as a route? Um, well, it's, it's, it is a little bit difficult to put into words because, you know, if, if you've seen, seen Taipan Wall, and I still remember the first time um, that I laid my eyes on, on Taipan and Serpentine's just the proudest line right up the middle at the highest point of the wall. Um, and, yeah, since I was a kid, you just look at it in amazement, like in awe, is that possible? And um, it's, it's a grade 29, oh, I could never climb that. You know, it just seemed like this far away dare to dream type situation um, and spending a lot of time in the northern Grampians doing sport climbing um, and you know working my way up through the grades it just seemed like I could never achieve something like that 
Um, but it's always there, like always kind of looking at you, looking so beautiful in the sunset and that kind of stuff. And you see and hear about other people do it. And, you know, so at one point I was doing a bit better and I took some harder routes and I just thought to myself, you know what, let's, let's try this. Like, let's dare to dream. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just a beautiful line and, and, I, you know, every, everyone who comes down off the route, I remember one guy said to me, he was like, that was the best climbing experience I've ever had in my life. And that was before I'd gotten on the route. And that's when I realized it didn't matter if I couldn't do it. I had to try, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know the history of the route at all? Or? I know a little bit. Yeah. Um, I do know that the first ascent was done in 1988, which is the year that I was born. Oh, that's pretty <laughs> By cool. By Malcolm Matheson, yeah. um, obviously. Um, and I believe, I have read that he did it in a very... Um, ethical yo-yo style type approach um whereby i'm pretty sure um after doing the top crux he actually took it all the way to the top as an on-site um pretty like as in the top section of the route he'd not inspected um which for anyone who's been on the route knows how like impressive that is like it's still really solid climbing and it's super pumpy up there um particularly you know it's almost got a little bit of a heartbreak finish at the top um which didn't thankfully didn't catch me um but yeah so i i've i've read about that first ascent um and the time that was put into it. And I guess I, like I had a poster on my wall of like Lynn Hill on the route, I think, you know, when I was a kid at some point. So the history sort of feels like it's there, but I wouldn't say I've um, read any sort of well-documented um, facts ab- about the line, I suppose, or how many ascents it's had. But, you know, people come from all over the world, like they've heard about the route, they've heard about the wall. Um, so, yeah, I guess it like it, it's got a bit of a reputation, I suppose. Yeah. And when you decided to that like okay, I'm going to work towards this, like where where were you at at the time like climbing wise in terms of say grade and and um how long did it take um, to get there? Good question. I I dreamed about it for like, you know, for such a long time and then I hopped on it just as a one-off like maybe sort of 2 years ago or okay. perhaps even a little bit longer just because like I had the opportunity, someone off. I was pretty much belaying for someone. <laughs> so if anyone ever asks you to belay them on the step ledge, just go because it's a bit of a bitch to get up there. But you get up there and you get the chance to get on the best route in the world. So don't you don't say no to that, which is yeah. basically you know what I did. And I had a try and, and it was like, it was pretty obvious to me that I wasn't good enough at that point to do the route. And also, um, even though I'd done quite a, a lot of other lines on Taipan, um, you know, I was pretty scared up there. Um, it was somehow just like more, um, more exposed, uh, more run out, even though it probably wasn't, maybe it was just in my mind. Um, but yeah, I knew I wasn't good enough. I, I spent a little bit of time, um, getting stronger. It's probably not so much what I needed. I don't know. Maybe I just needed some time to convince myself that it was possible and just to commit, um, to projecting it, which is not easy given its position. Um, and you know, getting, getting belays and that kind of stuff is not always so simple. Mm. You'd um, racked up some belay credits already though, right off the ledge. Well, so yeah. yeah, not much. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think like doing a couple of, of the other routes on Taipan, or, you know, ticking off some of the um, the other slightly more accessible lines was a really important side of things. I had ticked it, uh, at, at that grade, 29. Um, I, it wasn't my first 29. So I guess that was like, that's another barrier that mentally you go, okay, well, you know, maybe I can do it. Mm. Um, that kind of thing. And I, I'd sort of built a reasonably sort of solid pyramid of, um, of, you know, ticking off quite a lot of 25s, 26s, 27s, um, that kind of thing. So you get to a point where you realize that, um, it can become a reality. You just got to put some work in. Um, and that's what I did. Yeah. Okay. What was your (laughs) mental approach for climbing the route? You know, you talked about, um, yeah. I guess the visualization before, did, was there a lot of that? Yeah, there was a lot actually, um, mainly just because I couldn't stop thinking about it because it's just so good. Um, <laughs> unfortunately for me, I sort of started doing it um, in like the autumn season and I spent a couple of weekends um, getting up there and getting on it and making a little bit of progress. But then the winter kind of came and work got a bit busy and I spent a lot of time off it as well. So I kind of split that time. I couldn't tell you exactly how many tries or days I had on it, um, but there was definitely a big gap and that sort of made it difficult because I think in that time I sort of let go of the 
the mental side of things um, and sort of stepped back from it a little bit. Um, but certainly um, I took a strong um, – I, I sort of took note of what physical requirements I felt that I needed and didn't have yet. So there was some finger strength development that um, I knew that was required. The first move off the ledge as well is particularly bouldery um, and I just didn't have the shoulder strength at first. That was actually the hardest move on the route for me. So um, I worked on locking off and also, you know, the feet are just a long way away for someone of my size. So I did some specific training to do that. And whether or not it was actually the physical training or perhaps just, again, like I say, convincing myself that I could do it, you could do it yeah. um, then that's the, the approach that I took. But yeah, I mean, I knew the beta. I had some little hand-drawn beta maps. I knew exactly what I was doing and I broke the route down kind of into two parts because it's got this big horizontal break in the middle. Um, it's got a really hard move at the start, which I had to spend some time on, then some more moderate climbing, um, a crimpy crux before the break, which is probably, that took me a bit of time too. And then the top crux, which is known as the fat finger crux, um, probably wasn't as difficult for me because I got skinny fingers. <laughs> um, and it, it wasn't as hard as the moves down the bottom. So that one um, wasn't such a problem, but there's a lot of ground to cover and you've got to be smart about resting and you've just got to make sure that you don't um, lose it with excitement, I guess, if you think, you know, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to celebrate too early, that kind of thing, um, on that line. And the send itself came as, um, pretty unexpected. Um, and it was the first time I'd made it through the first, like the boulder at the start and then the first crux to the ledge, uh, to the, to the break. And then I just took it all the way to the top. So it kind of was like a big acceleration, um, from a projecting that might've looked like, and I always do this, like I look like I'm a mile off, <laughs> People are going, oh, that, that chick's got no chance. And then next thing you know, you just I'm at the top, you know? Yeah, wow. <laughs> so. Okay, okay. How did you feel when you got there? Um, I cried for about 45 seconds, pretty loud. <laughs> um, and not because I – like I've invested more time in roots before and more attempts, definitely, but I think it was that idea of doing something that you, you didn't think was possible for you, you know. Like I'd seen other people do it, but I just thought I didn't have – you know, I'm captain average, like I don't have that. Um, and then, you know, to do it, it was like um, – it was just an emotional experience for me and um, it was on – like a you know a beautiful wimmer a day well actually it was bloody freezing but you know the surroundings are, are just stunning and um yeah I just got to the top and it was a surprise and it was overwhelming and um I took that moment to in, enjoy what I'd achieved and um, what I'd done and um then I took the whip but you took the whip yeah mine was probably a little bit lame like I'd I was just like already so you know like overwhelmed that yeah. I, I didn't really need a whole lot more so um <laughs> you know I sort of scurried to the edge and I looked down at, at my belayer um and um I was just like I'm okay like I've been wailing for 45 seconds but I'm great you know and he's like yeah you're gonna jump so you know just just jumped off it, it's always big because you're a long way up and there's a lot of rope stretch and stuff but I wouldn't yeah. say it was like certainly not the uh, most impressive victory whip that anyone's ever seen <laughs> Yeah, and so um, do you feel like do you feel like you've taken a lot away from that now? Like, has that emboldened you or, or made you more confident in other climbing? Um, probably a little, yeah. I think that and other things that I've done in the last year or two, um, when I've just sort of you know gone for it and and yeah done stuff that I didn't didn't think I could do maybe quicker or easier than I thought they would be. Um, so I'm, I'm probably still working on it trying to learn to back myself because I think one of the main reasons I haven't climbed harder stuff is simply because I've never tried it you know yeah. so that's probably what I took away from it. It was like hey maybe if you had tried that sooner you would have done it sooner and maybe you need to you know apply this approach a little bit more often so um yeah despite like all my physical training and mental approach like maybe I just need to back myself as actually being a little bit you know better than I think I am or hope I am or something like that and you just see what happens you never know right when you um, might pull it out of the bag so I was reading an article that that I think maybe you wrote in um, Vertical Life and one thing that stood out to me was like you know that little bio about the the author of the article and it notes that um your heart and soul reside in the Wimmera um for the listeners the the Wimmera is obviously the uh, uh I guess that that regional area in western Victoria uh that uh Arapiles and the Grampians uh, are located in um 
tell us uh, about, I guess, your first climbing experience out there and, and maybe a bit about why your heart and soul resides there. Um, like, like I've spent a lot of time there over the years, hey. And um, uh, my mum was actually born and raised in Stall. Um, so as a kid, um, I took a lot of trips up there when I was young and, you know, had been to the Grampians and stuff, but didn't start climbing till a little bit later. Um, went with a, a group, like the, the, the junior club at the local gym had a, a group out there. And um, I mean, we were total bumblies, um, yeah. but we went out there and just had so much fun. Um, and I find, um, I think like the environment there, it's, it's always, it's always so beautiful, but it never ceases to amaze me, you know, like, um, when you just get a wonderful sunset or some beautiful clouds and wildlife and those sorts of things. So I spent a lot of time there. I, I did live in Horsham um, for a period of time while I was doing my PhD as well. Um, and I guess um, it just, yeah, it just feels like home. And that makes not a whole lot of sense because yeah, I was born and raised in Melbourne and um, somehow I think I just feel more settled um, when I'm in that space out there and particularly um, in the Grampians. Um, maybe I just did a lot of growing there and, and my fond memories you know, throughout my late teens and early 20s, um, in the good times, the relaxation, the escape, all those wonderful things that I said about like before have pretty much all taken place in the Wimmera for me. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's sort of how it, like it, it, that's my connection. Yeah. 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 And so you've, had I guess the privilege of of experiencing the the culture out there in the area the climbing culture uh, over what, like the last decade and a half if, if you went out there the first time in your, your teens um, what was it like back there in say like the mid 2000s late 2000s and how has it, how's it changed um, it's it's changed a lot like it's just it's a numbers game you know um, there's so many more people um, in the Wimmera climbing now and um, I mean you can still turn up to world-class crags these days and be alone <laughs> it still happens like you can you can go to Taipan on a perfect day with perfect conditions and look around and be like where is everyone? Um, and that's pretty much what it was what it was like back then all the time, I suppose. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously in, across that time, there's been so much development um, in the area as well. So there's new crags and and it's a huge area um, with a lot more rock that that's probably got potential for um, more excellent climbing. Um, but yeah, I think back in the day, um, yeah, like the might be you might get lost on a track to like a, a major crag <laughs> just because no one had been there for several months over the winter that kind of thing you didn't see a lot of internationals you'd still see like some people traveling some crushes um back in the day um but yeah i mean you just you just see a, a larger volume of people now particularly um bouldering that kind of stuff um and you know your average tourist is maybe like a little less surprised when they see someone walking around with a boulder pad or carrying a whole rack of gear yeah. um Whereas back, you know, like, yeah, that sort of stood out. We really stood out, I think, yeah. as climbers, particularly if we're pretty dirty and we've been in the campground for a little bit too long or something yeah. like that. Um, but, yeah, um, it's it's changed in a lot of ways. And then I suppose in other ways, you know, it just hasn't. And that's mm. why we love it so much. Yeah. 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 Was it a lot of like driving out there on Friday nights the entire week and then coming back late Sunday night? Absolutely. Like and routine? I think uh, some really fun memories just come from those car trips. Hey, like if you do them often with people that you maybe don't really know that well, but you do a trip out like you do a weekend together and all that time in the car you're going to get back to Melbourne guaranteed you're going to know a little bit more about that person that near stranger um, that you hopped in the car with on on Friday night so yeah like yeah just those wonderful conversations and like those super tiring draining weekends and then dragging yourself up on Monday morning to get on with the rest of your life (laughs) those kinds of things we've all been all the Melbourne weekend warriors we've been there yeah 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 yeah, fair enough so getting back to I guess um what's next for you like you you've sent serpentine and that was uh something that you didn't think was maybe possible many years ago and and now you've done it what's what's on the horizon for you just in terms of like other dream routes yeah like it's pretty hard to top that route so (laughs) (laughs) and i did like i kind of realized that afterwards i went into a bit of a slump and i just kind of 
like stepped back from a bit. Um, and you know, I, I didn't pick up a new project immediately or anything like that. And I wouldn't say I've really got anything major, um, immediately sort of at this point, particularly cause I'm traveling. Um, but there's a couple of things that I'm pretty interested in. Um, I have been out to check out Passport to Insanity and um, pretty pretty psyched to try and get myself up that route. I'm useless at crack climbing, really bad. Um, so despite many years of calling myself a rock climber, there's been a distinct lack of um, facing certain weaknesses, which I'm trying to address now. Um, and yeah, that's that's a climb that I really want to do, I think, particularly you know just due to the history and the location and yeah. um, the uniqueness of the route. Yeah, who was the first ascensionist on that one? Um, and Neary Dodd. Yeah. yeah. Did she build like an artificial crack training? Like, I hear it's thing? still around. Um, I wouldn't. Oh, her, I would, her actual crack. I think it might be in Natty. I'm not sure. Yeah, oh, there's okay. definitely replicas going around. I yeah. would love to like spend some time with one because <laughs> I think it would be very valuable for yeah. me. Um, but um, I also recently um, read that it was done barefoot, which is extremely interesting because the feet were what got, caused me a lot of trouble when I went that, out there to, to check it out. Um, so I might have a little bit of a play around with that as an option. Um, okay. it's, it's obviously like it's a super narrow crack, um, mm. but my hands do go all the way in, so there are no excuses. Um, I should be able to climb that thing. Um, But yeah, there's a little bit of um, tricky or fancy footwork I think that I need to work out getting sort of established into the roof. Um, And yeah, that's that's one on the list. But it's um, again, it's not exactly an easy access route where you've got ample lines of belayers offering to (laughs) come up with you. (laughs) It's a pretty long walk. Um, And you're probably a bit in the negative on belay credits at the moment, aren't you? Maybe, yeah. Maybe a little bit. Um, But yeah, I mean, and obviously the other concern is like whether or not our access to the area um, remains or becomes an issue in the future. So um, I think I'm lucky at the moment to be, you know, off off traveling Tassie um, and then soon to be off in the States um, because it's a a pretty tough time here in Victoria for climbers. Um, And yeah, we'll have to just wait and see how it all pans out. Yeah, indeed. On the positive side, you are going to the States, I understand. You've got um, this big sabbatical that we talked about. You're in, in uh, Tasmania on. And uh, so, what's the what's on the agenda? Um, I just want to have a really good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see uh, like all the places and do all the things. Um, <laughs> um, I, I want to go to places that yeah I haven't been before. And I've, I've had a couple of trips to the States, just one climbing trip. And um, when I was a teenager, I, I spent some time there and went to school there and stuff like that. But um, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's going to be, or I hope to find an amazing country that has a lot of natural beauty that perhaps gets ignored underneath other layers of political and social kind of um, <laughs> narratives. So uh, I'm just hoping to, yeah, immerse myself in being outside, um, taking that break from work. I don't have my sights. I don't have any particular performance goals. And I think that's like what I'm most excited about to get yeah. to relax and just enjoy climbing. I'm keen to meet all sorts of crazy characters while I'm on the road. Like that's always a good time. Um, and I want to just build my skills. Like I, I've really predominantly in the past been focused on sport climbing and training to get stronger because that's something you can achieve when you're working. You know, you can fit in a few hours of training and get better. Um, but when it comes to actually spending time on rock, like there's no substitute for that. Um, so now is my chance, I think, to catch up on those years that I've missed um, and expand my skill set. Um, do some more multi-pitching and, and maybe some proper big walling, um, which I've, you know, never, never done before. Um, up until Tasmania, right? Was well, it, I don't know if you can really, pitches? I don't know what's a big wall, like it wears your definition. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, I think that that type two fun kind of misery type approach would be cool to experience maybe once, maybe more times. They say you get addicted. Um, and I think there's a lot of unique climbing, obviously, um, in the States. It's so different from what we've got. So I'm, I'm going in with the expectation that I'm going to find it really tough, that I'm going to learn a whole heap of new skills and hopefully become a far better climber. So um, not necessarily ticking harder stuff, but just rounding out the skill set and um, enjoying myself. Yeah. Thanks for listening. You can find links to Ashley's articles and Instagram over on thelayback.com. You can also find The Layback on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Hit us up, give us a like, shoot me a note, and let me know maybe what you want to hear more of in these podcasts. 
Now, wherever you're headed today, may your day be filled with psych, bomb replacements, and unexpected knee bars. Thanks to Ashley for sitting down for this interview. I hope you really enjoy your trip across the US. To take us out, here's a little bit of a travel tip from another Australian on how to use those fandangled American restrooms. Some nitwits put two dunnies in here. One dunny, one bidet. Bidet. Mm. It's for um, after you, you, um, you know, you figure it out. Crocodile Dundee.